going to mess with my vibe. <laughs> Happy Feast of All Saints. Um, I like All Saints. It's the day of the church year that we get to stand, um, stand in awe of those who have come before us, who managed to live exceptionally beautiful lives, exceptionally holy lives. Those who are part of our church family, our church history, who have managed to obtain um, a greater level of sanctification than you and I ever will, let's face it. Um, it's just a day where we get to um, just say, wow. <laughs> I can't believe these people did this, right? We have opportunities to celebrate saints throughout the liturgical calendar. We have saints days all the time. We just, we don't get to, we don't get to celebrate them on Sundays very often. Um, we do it kind of during morning prayer or doing, or during the midweek service, um, places like this. We don't get to talk about the saints um, very often on Sundays. Um, so I thought I'd just tell you a couple stories. Does that seem all right? A little fireside chat style sermon. Um, I thought we'd start with St. Mark. What do you know? Do you know anything about St. Mark? Our, you know, our guy? What do you know? Piled around with Paul? Uh-huh. What else? He what? Sorry? His head is in Venice. Yeah, yeah, there's pieces of him in Venice. Yeah. Yeah. Say what? Yeah, he wrote one of the Gospels. There we go. That's the big thing. Yeah? Y'all read the New Testament, right? Matthew. There we are. Yeah, see, that's good. That's, most saints don't get a book in the Bible. That's, you know, this is how it works. When, when somebody goes to start new churches in a new city, um, the first four churches that they start are always, are almost always, called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, so, you know, pat yourselves on the back. We're one of the first ones here in Austin. Um, anything else? That's where our knowledge stops. It's kind of where mine stops. I know he wrote a book of the Bible. Um, Mark is known for being not really a companion of Paul's as much as a companion of Peter's. Uh, Mark was his kind of servant. Uh, Peter kind of became his mentor. His father and baptism were taught that Mark wrote his gospel at the, at the feet of St. Peter. So what we have in Mark is, we, we believe, is coming mostly from the witness of, of St. Peter. Um, that's kind of all I knew, but I did some homework this week. Um, so let me tell you a couple other things about St. Mark. St. Mark apparently had a reputation for being just extremely humble of disposition, at least... Um, Maybe not so much humble as much as obsessed with avoiding, like avoiding roles of authority. Um, and because he was so close to St. Peter, remember St. Peter was the first pope, a uh, big important leader guy. St. Mark was really afraid that Peter would recruit him to be in charge of something important. And so Mark went so far as to cut off his own thumb so as to render him apparently ineligible to be ordained as a priest. You know, 
Apparently those are the rules. You know, like you can't have flat feet and go into the army. Apparently he needed all ten fingers in order to serve as a priest in the ancient world. And so Mark knew this and he cut off one of his thumbs so that he wouldn't be able to serve as a priest. Um, sorry for Mark, Peter doesn't care so much about the rules and ordained him anyways. Um, ordained him not only as a priest but as a bishop and sent Mark to be the first bishop of Alexandria in Egypt. Um, there's a funny story about St. Mark about when he arrives in Alexandria um, that as he crosses the threshold into the city, he breaks one of his shoes. Um, and this, this story has survived for 2,000 years about the broken shoe. But, so, but this is what it is. He, he breaks one of his shoes. He takes his shoe to the local cobbler. He asks the cobbler to fix it. The cobbler says yes. And in the, in the course of fixing the shoe, the cobbler breaks his own hand somehow. And Mark thinks, well, I saw Jesus face this situation a couple times. I think I know what to do. And so he spits in some mud and rubs it on the cobbler's hands. Sure enough, the cobbler's hand is healed. So goes the story. Uh, but not just is it healed. Um, the cobbler begins asking questions. Why are you here? How can you do this? Mark shares with him about Jesus. The cobbler says, I want to know this Jesus. Mark says, well, you've come to the right person. Let me tell you all about Jesus. And before he's left, he's baptized the cobbler. The cobbler has become a Christian. His life has changed forever. Uh, this cobbler becomes so serious about Jesus that uh, a couple months later, when Mark realizes that he's in danger, he has to flee the city, all the kind of pagan politicians and priests are are beginning to worry that Mark is spreading the gospel, making uh, the populace disobedient. They're coming after him. Mark realizes he has to flee the city. He comes back and makes the cobbler the new bishop of Alexandria. Um, it's quite the meteoric rise. Um, and Mark leaves for a couple years um, to some other city that I don't remember the name of. Um, but he comes back two years later because he wants to preach the Easter sermon um, in Alexandria. He comes back, he's very pleased to see the cobbler's done good work. There's many more Christians in Alexandria than when he left. Um, there's still rumors of the kind of pagan priests and politicians kind of scheming. Um, and, but Mark thinks it's safe to come back. He comes back to Alexandria, preaches the Easter sermon, but while he's in the pulpit, while he's in the pulpit preaching the Easter sermon, um, the politicians sneak up behind him and kidnap him, put a rope around his neck, and they drag him through the city until he dies. And that's how Mark dies. As he's dying, Mark says, into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Um, then his bones get moved to Venice a couple hundred years later. <laughs> That's St. Mark. What other stories? Let's see. I can do St. Lawrence or St. Catherine. How many hands for St. Lawrence? How many hands for St. Catherine? All right, we'll do Catherine. Catherine's fun. Um... All right, Catherine, she's a princess, uh, fourth century, also in Alexandria, um, born to a king. Um, she, she is baptized when she's 14, um, and her dad, king, some kind of king, 
dies when she's 18. So she finds herself 18 years old, alone, living in this palace in Alexandria. And you know how this works basically until we get to Constantine. We have different Roman emperors that come, and some of them are like, okay, Christians, just it's fine, just don't bother us, it's fine, you know, just be, just be cool. Um, and then other emperors are like, let's kill all the Christians. Um, and so about this time, the, a new emperor comes, Maxentius, the emperor comes, and he's one of the let's kill all the Christians um, emperors. And so what you have to do, this is the way that you legally kill people as a, as a new emperor. You require, the, this is how you kill Christians. Um, you pass a law that, will, that is punishable by death. Usually that law is you have to worship the pagan gods. And so you have to come sacrifice to the pagan gods. And so, so Maxentius does this. Um, so all of the citizenry of Alexandria are required to come sacrifice um, to the pagan gods at the pagan temple you know, downtown on South Congress or whatever. <laughs> um, and Catherine is very upset by this. And she sees hordes and hordes of Christians um, that she knows, um, you know, getting in line to go sacrifice to the pagan gods because they're normal people like you and me. They are afraid of dying. You know, we would be in that line probably. Um, but Catherine, instead of, instead of going to the Christians uh, and appealing to them, don't do this. She goes straight to the emperor instead, 18. But she's had a very fine education, the finest education Alexandria had to offer, and she's smart. She goes to the emperor, and she appeals to the emperor, um, my God is real, and your gods are not. Don't kill all of my friends. And they engage in, in like a good old-fashioned philosophical debate a theological debate. Um, and Catherine is so impressive. The emperor is so impressed by the, her intellectual powers that he, he puts pause on the executions. And the emperor realizes he's got a couple options. Option one is he can become a Christian, which he doesn't want to do, um, as compelled as he may be by Catherine's arguments. Option two is kill Catherine, um, which would seem to be the obvious answer, although they've been through enough rounds of, of martyring Christians that they know that that actually doesn't really help. It only produces more Christians. Uh, when you martyr somebody, you know, it's inspiring to the people. So he chooses door number three, which is I need to make a fool out of Catherine. I need to prove to the world that she's wrong. And so the emperor... Um, sends out heralds across his ancient empire and says, I need the 50 smartest people in the empire um, to come and have a public spectacle debate with this little smart aleck. <laughs> and he does. 50 of the smartest people in the Roman Empire come and they have a big show of it. Um, they have a big old classic debate. Which gods are real? which gods are not, et cetera, et cetera. You can guess what happens. Catherine just owns, just owns all 50. Um, just schools them. Everybody is baffled, blown away by how smart this woman is. Um, and Maxentius, the emperor, is so mad um, that he orders that all 50 of these supposed scholars be burned at the stake immediately. 
And guess what the 50 scholars do? They go to Catherine and they say, you've convinced us, please baptize us before we get killed. Mm. And they all become Christians and then they all get killed. And then Catherine gets killed. What are we supposed to do with these strange stories? Um, What are we supposed to do with these strange stories? My encouragement would be this. Don't be distracted um, by the, the mud and the spit of it all. You know, the, the stories of the saints get crazy. Those are two pretty mild ones, uh, if you read these things. You know, like when St. When John gets buried in his little casket, they come back a day later, and the casket is full of uh, communion wafers instead of the body. It's wild stuff. To me, what's more amazing about the story of St. Mark, for example, um, What's more amazing than him being able to have a superpower, apparently, of healing a cobbler's hand is, is the power that you can have in your own person to walk into a cobbler shop and then to leave having changed that cobbler's life forever. How, how much charisma do you have to have? How, how much faith do you have to have? How compelling of a presence do you have to be to walk into an appointment to get your shoe fixed and to leave having changed that person's life forever? That to me is what makes a saint a saint. A saint is just is somebody who When you are in their presence, you feel closer to God. And I think it's safe to say that we know people like this, or we have met people like this along the journey of our lives. Um, Maybe not capital S saints that have been or will be canonized one day, but maybe lowercase s saints, people whom when we are near them, God actually feels real to us. When we are near them, when we are with them, we feel like we are with God. But imagine, what kind of life must you live? How deeply sanctified do you have to be in order to just walk around the ancient world and be turning people's lives upside down everywhere you go? The other crazy thing about the saint stories is that when you're reading when you're reading these old books, you know, the books that were published in the Middle Ages and stuff about the saint stories, you get to the saint's death and then you still have you realize you're only halfway through the pages devoted to that saint. And that's because of all the stuff that they did after they died. You know, there was a ship and a storm and then the ghost of Saint Mark appeared and said abracadabra and the storm calmed down. No, these types of things. Um, there's a crazy one at saint, about Saint Mark where they, they, um, they were really worried for a long time once his body got moved to Venice, 
um, that looters were going to come and, and take the bones and use them, desecrate them, or use them for their own kind of superstitious stuff. And so there are only like three people that knew where the bones were hidden inside of St. Mark's in Venice, inside the church. Um, and they hid them in a particular column, marble column, in the thing. Um, but the three people that knew, that knew all died and didn't tell anybody where the bones were. And so for decades and decades, uh, people were terrified that they had been stolen already. They didn't know where they were uh, until one day there was an earthquake and the bones themselves fell out of the pillar into the church. Ha! <laughs> oh, I love being a Christian. It's so wild. <laughs> but I think, you know, that kind of stuff is, there's, there's the stuff that, it's not that different than the kind of stuff that you and I say when we say, you know, I got to the top of the mountain and I just knew that Grandma Susan was with me mm. in that moment. I think it's kind of in the same category of speech. Um, the memory of a person, and especially the memory of a saint, someone who lived such a holy life, reverberates forward into history after that person has died. And it's not just to say that that person has not ultimately died, that they're, that they're still alive, they're still with God in some mystical way that we don't fully understand, but it's also to say that their memory continues to reverberate into our lives such that it has effects on our lives, on how we live, on the decisions we make. We can be inspired by the example that the saints give to us, inspired by... Um, the courage that they had, the intellect that they had, the, the sacrifice they were willing to endure. I think that's, the Feast of All Saints is about just being inspired. The hard thing, the hard thing, about all saints, the hard thing for us, I mean, the beautiful thing, the beautiful thing, but the hard thing is that everything it takes for you to become one of these people, for you to become a saint, everything required in order for you to come become someone like St. Mark, someone for whom other people in the world say to be with this person makes me feel closer to God. Everything that's required for you to be that kind of person, you already have. You don't have to have money to be a saint. You don't have to be successful. You don't have to be smart. I mean, Catherine was, but there's a lot of dumb saints. I could tell you those stories. <laughs> You don't have to be interesting. You don't have to be important. All you have to do is love God. You have everything you need to be a saint. You have a Bible, a church, a community, priests. There's a, a French theologian that I like. Uh, who says there's only one tragedy in life and it's to come to the end of it and to have not become a saint. 
which I think is quite beautiful. Uh, you can take it in the wrong way. Don't take it in the wrong way. You can take it in a kind of legalistic, like just wake up and do better every day, gosh dang it. Um, Christianity is not about getting up and doing better each day. Christianity is about grace. Christianity is that you are forgiven 70 times 7. You can screw up every day and God is going to love you just as much and save you just as much. But what All Saints reminds us is that also you can do better. <laughs> and that it's only for your own joy. I don't know how else a saint can, you know, stand before the lion cage and say, yeah, go for it. Let them loose. If they themselves are not intimately acquainted with the joy that can only come from God. I'll have to do St. Lawrence next year. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Thank you.